It was really exciting. I was never really good at sports in high school. You know, I had friends, but I wasn't sitting at the cool kids table per se. And then all of a sudden we built this thing and girls thought it was cool. Guys thought it was cool. Like everybody was like interested in talking about it. We kind of felt like mini celebrities on campus and just got attention in a way that I'd never gotten attention for anything in my life before. So of course that's exciting. And then there's sort of the, the reality of Okay, I'm now making as much money as a student as what I had hoped to be making when I was graduating from college. And like, it kind of started to turn the wheels a little bit on what a career might look like. I went to college thinking I was going to go get an entry level job at some big company working in corporate finance or something. I, didn't, I don't even know what I thought I was going to do. And the realization that, you know, okay, I could actually maybe just do this or just be an entrepreneur and like start my own business. I knew I wanted to run a business one day, but I didn't think that I would necessarily be able to start it myself. All of those things were kind of happening at once. It felt almost too easy in the very beginning. It was just like, we put up funny pictures on a website and all of a sudden someone's just like sending us checks every month. And, you know, we didn't have an ad sales team. We didn't have anything like that. It was just my buddy Ricky and I just like in our dorm rooms, like literally just making jokes. And also we're still in school, so trying to sort of manage that throughout all of this was kind of interesting. And I think I had a period where I was like, well, who cares about school? I've started this website that's much more important. I'm just going to focus on that, which I did, but I still wanted to graduate. I wasn't, you know, people have asked me before, like, well, did you drop out? I'm like, I think you watched The Social Network and you're mistaking the situation that Mark Zuckerberg had with my situation, which was orders of magnitude different. You know, we had a very small but cool business, but it wasn't like we're going to be billionaires. It was very, very much not that. But it kind of was that. I mean, not in terms of money, maybe, but impact, that's a different story. You see, the person you just heard talking was one of the key people driving a very important shift that took place in the history of media as a result of the internet and World Wide Web. It was the shift from centralized content creation to user-generated content. That's right, the hours you waste on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube, that's largely a byproduct of the kind of success our guest on this episode of Webmasters had curating other people's funny pictures and videos. He is Josh Abramson, founder of collegehumor.com. Are you ready to hear the story? Let's get dialed in. Hi there, and welcome to Webmasters. This is the podcast that tries to turn you into a better entrepreneur and maybe a bit of a more knowledgeable person in general by sharing the stories of the internet's most successful innovators and creators. My name is Aaron Dinan. I am, of course, your host. I'm a bit of an entrepreneur and creator myself, but most importantly for our purposes here, I teach entrepreneurship at Duke University, and I spend way more time than any normal person should studying the history of the internet and trying to understand how opportunities for entrepreneurial innovation evolve over time. That's relevant here because one thing I'm always trying to highlight for my students is that despite how entrepreneurship is usually portrayed in popular culture and the media, entrepreneurial opportunities are not revolutionary. They are evolutionary. By that I mean the biggest and most impactful new technologies and companies don't spring up overnight. They're part of much larger transitional flows of innovation. 
It's this evolutionary process of innovation we're going to focus on in this episode. Sounds fun, right? I promise I'll do my best to make it fun. After all, this episode is about a comedy website, collegehumor.com. So to kick things off, what could be more fun than to pause for a moment and tell you about our sponsor? Webmasters is being brought to you thanks to the generous support of our partner and sponsor, Latonas. Latonas is a boutique mergers and acquisitions broker. They specialize in helping people buy and sell cash flow positive internet businesses and digital assets. That includes things like content websites, which we'll be focused on in this episode. And it also includes SaaS apps, e-commerce stores, Amazon FBAs, domain portfolios, and just about any other type of online work from anywhere internet business you can think of. If you happen to be running a profitable internet business and you're thinking, hey, maybe it's time to sell this and move on to something new, then you should be talking with the team at Latona's. They can help you understand the potential of what you've got. And if you do decide to sell, they can help you get it sold for a great price. Alternately, if you're thinking of buying an internet business, Latona's can help you too. Just head on over to their website where you'll see listings for all the latest businesses they've currently got for sale. That website is latona's.com. L-A-T-O-N-A-S.com. Let's go ahead and get this out of the way up front. You heard the name of the featured company on this episode, College Humor, and you either thought, oh my gosh, I loved College Humor, or you thought, what the heck is College Humor? According to this episode's guest, Josh Abramson, that's fairly standard. In fact, it usually dictates how he talks about his past because it represents an important generational shift. Yeah, I don't really talk about collegehumor.com that much anymore, but there was a period of time when if someone was my age, they would know of it instantly. And it was this thing that they would want to talk about for an hour. And whether or not I was up for that conversation or not would sort of determine whether I would decide to go there. And that's actually at the core of what I want us to focus on. College Humor is an example of what we might call a transitional entrepreneurial opportunity. It was incredibly impactful, but its prominence was short-lived because it existed within a sort of transitional gap in terms of culture and technology. Before the internet became the global behemoth it is today, media, things like movies and TVs and books and newspapers and magazines, were primarily created, curated, and distributed by large centralized corporations, things like television networks and movie studios and publishing houses. But of course, the World Wide Web comes along and changes all of that. Anyone, anywhere can be a producer and distributor. And eventually we move into the world we're in now of social media and user-generated content. That's pretty darn revolutionary. But the revolution didn't happen overnight because, of course, for thousands of years, people had learned to expect centralized content management. As a result, for a relatively short period of time in the early days of the web, users experienced a sort of transition moment where the most popular user-generated content was centrally managed and curated by quasi-traditional publishing entities. And one of the most popular of those web publishing entities, at least for funny content, was College Humor. College Humor, all it is today is a comedy channel on YouTube, which I think is probably the closest analog to what the original College Humor was. But 
the only way that you could have that much reach in those days because YouTube, you know, wasn't a thing was you, know, you had to have your own destination website. So, you know, if somebody is listening and thinking about it relative today, and if you're 18 years old right now, like you just have no perspective of what it was like before these other platforms existed, right? So in the same way that having a television network before cable, like there were only a couple of them. And, you know, if you wanted to have a show, it had to be on one of those networks. College Humor was a little bit like that compared to what it is today, where you don't need anyone to make a show and have it become popular. You can just be a channel on YouTube. We've already run into a few similar examples of this brief phenomenon here on Webmasters. Sites like Drew Curtis's Fark.com from episode number 20 and Rob Malda's Slashdot from episode number 45. Those episodes were about websites that curated interesting user-submitted stories and news articles. But if you've spent more than 30 seconds on any popular social media platform, you know the vast majority of user-generated content is way less educational. It's mostly silly pictures and videos. That's what was on College Humor, as well as a few other sites like it, sites like Consumption Junction and Ebombs World, and some others we'll hopefully have a chance to talk more about in future Webmasters episodes. But for now, we're going to focus on the story of College Humor and Josh Abramson's path toward creating it. I remember going to a department store with my mom that sold computers when I was a little kid, right when AOL and Prodigy, I mean, I, I remember it was Prodigy specifically was a thing that you could log on to at this mall store. And I think I was probably in sixth grade, early, mid 90s. I remember going and waiting in line for Windows 95, if that is a meaningful reference point. But I can remember the first time I ever used the internet and it was using Prodigy. And it was just this feeling of like, oh, wow, this thing just doesn't end. Like you can just keep discovering new things as long as you want to spend time doing that. Um, and even, you know, obviously Prodigy was like a closed internet, but I asked my mom to get me that. And I can remember one other friend that I knew that had the internet and, you know, we would send each other emails, stupid stuff. Again, this is like seventh grade. Um, I wasn't coding or doing anything like that, but I was definitely interested uh, in high school, my best friend and I, he was more tech savvy and I can remember going to his house and we we're just being high school kids, just trying to mess around online. And that was sort of the beginning of thinking about the internet, not necessarily from a business perspective, but just thinking that it was a cool thing. That friend, by the way, was Ricky Van Veen, the man who would become Josh's College Humor co-founder. When we went to college, we pretty quickly decided we wanted to try and start a business together. So this was like month one, month two of college. And he knew how to build websites. Uh, he built our high school's website and some other things like that. My brother was one of the early employees at advertising.com. So I learned during my senior year of high school just how certain types of internet businesses were making money through ads, which you know I didn't know what a media business was. I'd never really contemplated what building a media business would look like, but it was presented to me I remember some of these first digital media businesses, and one of them was JoeCartoon.com. I don't know if you remember that one, but it's a guy who did the frog in a blender. Some of these flash animations that were kind of iconic in the late 90s, and they were a client of Advertising.com. And I remember my brother telling me that he was sending this guy a check for $10,000 every month, which was an insane amount of money for me to even think about at that age. So 
that was what got the wheels spinning of, okay, if I can figure out how to build a website and get people to come to that website, then I can put ads on the website and make money. That was like as simple as the business plan was. And that was really how College Humor was born, was just thinking through those ideas. We had a couple of different ideas that we were messing around with, and comedy just seemed like one that we were both also just interested in outside of the internet or any of these other ideas or building businesses. We liked comedy, and we thought that we could probably figure out a way to put funny things on a website and get people to look at them. And that was really the whole idea. I mean, to be fair, that's kind of how lots of people still make money on the internet, right? So was College Humor your first attempt at attracting an audience or did you try something else before that? Yeah, I mean, College Humor, we started building it the end of first semester of freshman year, which was 1999, which I think one other thing worth mentioning is if you started college in 99, you probably didn't have high speed Internet before you got to college. And then you got to college and you were experiencing high speed Internet for the first time. Not only that, you also maybe had a laptop for the first time. You were sitting at a desk all day in front of a computer where that just wasn't how high school kids in 98 were living their lives. So that created an interesting dynamic where all of a sudden everybody's kind of on these computers trying to figure out like what they're supposed to do with them or, you know, people are just bored trying to waste time. And there weren't really that many websites that had funny content on them at that point. So people would literally just have folders on their desktops, which would then be shared on the campus network. So you would go from room to room and look at, you know, all the funny videos or funny pictures on Rhett's computer because he's been collecting funny stuff. The original idea was, well, let's just take all this stuff that's like living on our campus network and just put it on a website. So it was sort of user generated, but it was also generated by us just kind of taking stuff from other places. And that's how it was born. So it just kind of took off on its own? Does that sort of thing really happen? I I tend to be skeptical when I hear those types of magic growth stories. I, I feel like there's always more to them that I'm just not hearing about. It really was one of those things where there was no Zuckerberg, there was no Facebook, obviously, or anything like that. But to us, that's what it felt like. When I watched The Social Network, on a much, much smaller scale, that's kind of the experience we had just in terms of like, we built this thing, we put it online, and all of a sudden just like crazy stuff starts happening in our lives, like immediately, like within like three months, you know, we're getting flown to have meetings with big shot executives in New York City and all these really interesting things were happening. We had an offer to buy the business for $9 million four months after we started it. All these things just happened out of nowhere. And we're also making real money right away because it was before the first dot-com bubble had crashed. So it was very easy to monetize a content website at that precise moment in time. You really just put an ad code up and you would just get checks in the mail. So it felt almost too easy. We were also 18 years old, so like had no idea how anything really worked in the world. We were just sort of figuring it out as we went. And to your question, like, was it the first thing that we tried? I mean, yeah, I mean, we were 18. We built this thing, we put it online. And then three months later, people are trying to buy it from us. And sending us plane tickets to come have meetings with them and that sort of thing. So it was it was a pretty crazy time for us, for sure. Okay, so I'll buy that it grew quickly, but it still had to get its first users, right? So how'd you do that? How did the first users of College Humor discover it before they started sharing it to everyone else? So the original idea that I had was to... In those days, funny pictures were every bit as popular, actually more so than funny videos, because even still, you know, people didn't have smartphones with video cameras on and there just wasn't as much video content. 
and it was still kind of heavy from like a bandwidth perspective. So it just wasn't as easy to share. So I would take these funny pictures that were from the website and I would print flyers and then just put come to collegehumor.com, like that kind of thing. They were more clever than that, but that was sort of the idea. And I would just print a couple hundred of them and I went to like every urinal in all of the boys' dorms and I just hung them over the urinals because people would do that to like promote chess club or whatever. So I would just post them there and then I could see pretty quickly all this traffic was being generated at our school. So then I drove to other schools and then I started to find people at different schools and I would send them a t-shirt in exchange for doing the same thing at their schools and they would send me pictures to show that they had done it. It was literally posting flyers of funny pictures up in bathrooms that was the initial marketing for College Humor. And then once it started to pick up steam, then it would grow virally the same way that you would expect any viral video type of website or thing. There was also, once we had a bit of scale, then kind of figuring out link exchanging, cross-marketing, and getting to know everybody else who had a similar type of website, Ebombs World or FARC or the few others out there at that time. And just, we'll send you 100,000 uniques, you send us 100,000 uniques, and just doing that you know, over and over and over again was how our audience was built up over time. But again, yeah, the, the beginning was, was literally just flyers and urinals. Flyers and urinals. I just want to go on record right now and suggest to Josh that if he ever writes an autobiography, the title should definitely be Flyers and Urinals. And to be fair, this really is a critical part of the growth story of the internet. Even in the early days of the web, people didn't just discover things magically, they had to find out about them. And the late 90s was a time where you'd read about a website on, say, a flyer while peeing at a urinal, and that's why you'd go check it out. Because remember, other options didn't exist. I think it's worth being cognizant of the fact that College Humor launched about five years before Facebook. I guess YouTube was 2000 five, so five or six years before YouTube as well. So there were no user-generated platforms like there are today. There were a couple small little niche content websites that existed. The first one that I remember was goofball.com, which was sort of one of the inspirations for College Humor, although I think we quickly surpassed them in scale without a whole lot of effort. But that was one of the early ones. And again, it, it was sort of the idea of user-generated content was what we were sort of playing with. We always thought of ourselves as like a curator. So people would upload things to share on College Humor, but then it wouldn't actually make it onto the website unless we approved it. So there was definitely a thing where like you'd get all these frat boys from wherever that would throw a party or something because their stuff got featured on College Humor. It, it was exciting for people to be featured and it sort of felt not unlike having your picture in like a magazine or something. So there was a bit of that. The first version of College Humor was mostly user-generated. We had our own writing that sort of sat on top of it, and I think we gave it a voice and sort of a point of view that resonated with people. So College Humor began as a repository for and curator of online content. And that worked well for its first five or so years of existence, really well, in fact. As you've already heard Josh explain, he and his co-founder Ricky became mini-celebrities on college campuses worldwide. 
they were getting acquisition offers and all sorts of other exciting partnership opportunities, particularly for a pair of teenagers in college. Though it wasn't all easy, in fact, the rise of college humor coincided with the infamous dot-com crash of the early 2000s. And in fact, being in college is a big part of what helped them weather the storm that wiped out so many other early web companies. When the first dot-com bubble truly crashed, late 2000, early 2001, we had this business that, you know, we'd made a, a decent chunk of change and felt like we had this thing that people were really into, but all of a sudden we went from making what felt like a lot of money to not making any money. Fortunately, we didn't have any expenses, so we were able to continue to run and build this business. But in that instance, really had to figure out how to monetize in a real way as opposed to you know, just plugging in ad code for ad networks that didn't actually create real value. So how'd you do that? How'd you survive the collapse of the overspending ad industry, particularly with a website that was basically entirely reliant on ad revenues? A lot of it really fell back to, okay, so we have this website called College Humor, probably never going to be a massive business, but it has a lot of traffic. Can we use that audience to then build other businesses and simultaneously monetize the college humor business. Because by that point, you know, we were doing ad sales ourselves. Like I was literally our one ad sales guy at that precise moment in time, had learned how difficult it was and was just thinking about ways to grow the business faster and to build out other business units. So we started with a couple of like weird novelty items that we'd come up with and just tried selling them on college humor. It worked. One of our biggest advertisers at that point in time was... Well, there were two t-shirt websites that were buying ads. And every month they were the first to pay, never complained about the rates, just made it very clear that, all right, these guys have to be making money because they're just buying ads from us all the time. And I was thinking about, you know, other businesses that we could start and going through the list of them. A lot of them were pretty challenging. Like it's not easy to build men's sandals. Making sandals, that's actually pretty hard compared to just like printing graphics on a t-shirt. So why don't we just start with t-shirts? Our first t-shirt website was called Busted Tees. We launched it in 2003 and we had 10 designs to start. And then we just kind of took the fire hose of traffic that was college humor and directed it towards the t-shirt website. And all of a sudden we're selling a lot of t-shirts. And then I think within about four or five months, we were generating more revenue from the t-shirts than we were generating from the college humor business. So it was sort of like, okay, well, I guess this is actually... What we were meant to do is like this t-shirt business, this is going to be more lucrative than College Humor. Would you say the crash was kind of a good thing for College Humor? Because that's what led you to a more sustainable business model, right? You know, after the crash and when we had to sort of rebuild the business from scratch from a monetization perspective, I think that's when I really learned how these things work. And that was what ultimately led me to get into selling t-shirts and selling other things and, and focusing on e-commerce was just understanding what the value of an audience is from my purely dollars and cents. Like, all right, if we have this many million people coming to the website and I can get this many hundreds of thousands of them to click on these ads and then I can convert them at 1% or, you know, that kind of math and like really understanding what that meant. Ad targeting today is like a whole other thing than what it was back then. You know, we had an ad server that we literally built ourselves because we didn't even know how to plug into one or couldn't find one that suited our needs. So trying to figure out how to manage all of those things was, I think, certainly made me a much more sophisticated entrepreneur in understanding media and e-commerce and how those things sort of play together. So that was, I think, a really good lesson because, again, it felt almost too easy in the very beginning. You know, that 
plays into something I feel like I'm always trying to explain to my students and other young entrepreneurs. They tend to obsess about their products, but the valuable thing is the audience. What you showed with College Humor was that you could take a huge audience and find all sorts of different ways to monetize it, and that's where the real business opportunities are. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think about it a lot, too, which is the t-shirt business that we built wouldn't have existed had we not started a media business that had t-shirt advertisers, right? The marketplace business I started, T Public, wouldn't have existed had I not been doing busted tees for eight years before that and sort of had an idea how to do that better. And, and I think a lot of times I see entrepreneurs struggle with, you know, they have to like polish the apple a bit too much with their idea. Like, I want to have this perfectly formed idea of this thing I'm going to pursue. When, at least in my experience, most of the good ideas come, you know, College Humor was the first idea that we had that was sort of like independent of anything else. But everything else has been derivative of that that I've done in my career. And, and I think that oftentimes as an entrepreneur, you just have to have a little bit of faith in yourself and what you're pursuing. And then you know, start walking in a direction and hope that you're going to figure out where you have to go from there once you get there and, and just continue to iterate and be willing to pivot and give up when things aren't working and move on to something else. And I think that's not always intuitive that you're going to sort of figure out the real thing down the road. And, and as an investor, I've seen that so many times where I've passed on massively successful businesses because I didn't like the initial idea that I was being pitched, but I liked the founder. And so many times, great founders, they figure it out and they pivot if they have to. So I would bet on a person 99.9% of the time over the idea, if that makes sense. Josh's story is a good reminder of the importance of being flexible and nimble, particularly when you're launching a business in a rapidly evolving industry. Entire business models can literally collapse within a few days. If you can't adapt, you can't survive. And in a way, adapting was, and still is, the story of college humor. As of this recording, it's primarily a YouTube channel with over 14 million subscribers, which ain't nothing. But remember, it launched in a world where most people either couldn't or didn't know how to post their own content online. As that world changed, Josh and College Humor had to adapt. They did it by becoming content producers. The death of College Humor was clearly in the cards with the birth of Facebook and YouTube. And we actually sold our business right around the time when those two businesses were first gaining traction and had a couple very frustrating years as we found it more difficult to grow as a result of the headwinds created by those other businesses. Would you mind talking a bit more about that? Because you referenced the death of College Humor, but it's still actually around as a popular YouTube channel, right? So how did it evolve into that? You were just telling us about having turned it into a t-shirt company, Busted Tees. How did it switch back into a media company? Right around that time, we moved to New York City and then sort of the, the digital media scene that existed in New York at that time, we kind of got pulled into it. And all of a sudden we're meeting with Nick Denton from Gawker and all the people who we've seen their businesses, The Onion, Nerve, the few people who were in downtown Manhattan at that time doing this stuff. And just very quickly saw more opportunity on the media side. And that was when I realized like, oh, I need to build out a sales team and talk to people who knew how to do that and figure that out. And at that point, the media business started to grow much faster. And that was sort of what brought us back towards media. While the t-shirt business continued to grow, it was not the focus 
until many years later when I bought it back. But that was sort of the, the way that we were thinking. And that's sort of how Vimeo came to exist as well, which was just my business partner, Jacob. It was his idea. It was based on other things we were playing around with the college humor. And, you know, he showed me the first version of it. And we said, all right, well, let's make this a side project that we're going to put some resources into as well. And so it was really, it was a small business. We only had a couple people sitting in a couple rooms, just like building stuff all day. And the idea was just to keep building stuff and throwing it against the wall and seeing what stuck. And anytime we, we got some signal from all of the noise that we were creating, we would follow it. By the way, you just heard Josh talking about Vimeo, the multi-billion dollar publicly traded video sharing platform. And no, you weren't imagining things. That's because Vimeo was actually incubated inside of College Humor, primarily by one of Josh's business partners, Jacob Lodwick. It's a fascinating story in its own right, which, spoiler alert, I plan to share with you at some point in a future episode of Webmasters. So, you know, make sure you're subscribed to Webmasters on your podcasting app of choice because you won't want to miss it. In the meantime, all I'll say for now is that the incredible growth story of Vimeo actually coincides with the story of how Josh wound up selling college humor. So let's get back to that. Yeah, so we moved to New York in 2004. Within six months, we'd had a, an article written about our business in The New Yorker, which was another kind of crazy inflection point for us, where all of a sudden we had senior executives at all the big media companies reaching out, wanting to meet. And it was clear that you know some of them were interested in buying the business. Um, we went down the path with MTV networks to the point where I thought that the deal was a done deal. Um, I'd told friends and family I'm selling the business to MTV. You know, it's going to be great. Ultimately, they passed and said they were no longer interested. This is after spending like six months on due diligence and the whole thing. So it was sort of deflated by that. And then in the very beginning of 2006, we had met with Barry Diller a few months earlier. Barry Diller is, of course, the famed entrepreneur and media executive who spent time as chairman of IAC, Interactive Corp, parent company of Home Advisor, City Search, Match Group, Tinder, Urban Spoon, The Daily Beast, and Ask.com, among others. Before that, he was CEO of Paramount when they produced films like Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and the first installments of the Indiana Jones series. He also launched Fox Network, greenlighting shows like Married with Children and The Simpsons. He ran QVC for a while, and he grew the USA Network. So, you know, that Barry Diller was the person advising Josh in college humor. One of the pieces of advice he gave us was to never sell the business, which was kind of funny um, in hindsight, but he didn't have any place for college humor in the portfolio at that point in time. But then come January of 2006, he'd started a programming division. They wanted to make acquisitions. We had already connected. And next thing you know, we have an offer from IAC to buy 51% of the business. The idea being that we would be able to take money off the table, but then continue to grow the business together and ultimately have another exit five years down the road. Not a deal structure that I recommend people taking as an entrepreneur, but at that point in time, the amount of liquidity for us was pretty tremendous. It was more than any of us probably imagined that we'd make in our entire lives when we went to college. So it was hard to say no. Again, that was 2006. We had a deal to basically stick around for five years, um, which we did. You say that kind of begrudgingly, like maybe sticking around for five years wasn't such a great idea in hindsight. 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, YouTube, Facebook, they started sort of right around that time. And we were really facing an uphill battle of trying to build the next Comedy Central or the next, you know, big thing, which is sort of our ambition at the time. So it was always a little bit of a difficult place to be in where you sell a business with this expectation that it's going to turn into something massive and then it's not happening. And the irony is that Vimeo actually did turn out to be that thing for them. It just took a lot longer than anybody realized it was going to. I mean, you know, people forget Vimeo started in 2004. So while it's this big public company now, I mean, that was 17 years ago. It took a long time. I think people sometimes forget how long it takes to grow a business. So yeah, so that was really the trajectory of, of how it went. By the time my five years was running up and I was ready to leave, the t-shirt business that we'd started, which we also sold along with College Humor, was very much the redheaded stepchild of IAC. Nobody cared about it. Barry Diller, every time he would hear about it, would just say, shut it down. I don't even want to think about this business. You know, it was very <laughs> negative about it. But at the time, you know, it was a business that was making a million dollars a year, just free cash flow, very simple to run. But again, he just didn't even want to think about it. So I had the idea to just ask them if I could just take the business with me, basically. They owed me some money. I wanted to leave. It was one of those deals where like all the pieces kind of added up and it made sense. So I was able to buy that business and close on buying it the day I left, which was May 1st, 2011. And then I went from having 100 employees and running a division of a public company to now having a t-shirt website with six employees where I was literally working in like a mouse infested loft. And it was great. So it was uh, you know, an interesting path to kind of go from super small business, now part of a public company, back to super small business, and then kind of doing it all over again. Out of curiosity, how much of the struggle to grow college humor was related to the name and target audience? The brand cuffs, if you will. I mean, that was something we would talk about a lot. I mean, we debated changing the name. We started separate brands, none of which are we going to talk about today because you probably haven't heard of them, which kind of shows you how successful that was. Yeah, I mean, College Humor, the name, I think, resonated with a lot of people. And a lot of our early growth was probably enhanced by the name. And, you know, people kind of understood what it was very quickly. But then it was very limiting at the same time. And I think as our ambitions grew and as we wanted to be something bigger for a, a wider audience, I think that the name probably made it more challenging to do that. So, so yeah, I mean, it was sort of, you know, this identity that we were equal parts proud of, but also like trying to sort of minimize, if that makes sense. And I also remember you know, being in college and, and thinking, wow, there's no way I'm going to be like 30 years old and running a website called College Humor. And then... I remember someone said to me something like, well, it's not like the CEO of MTV is a 16-year-old screaming girl. Like, you can sort of put on a different hat and run the business, and you don't have to be in the demographic necessarily. And again, by the time we graduated, we were running College Humor, and it was becoming a bigger thing. I think it became less something I was self-conscious of. But, you know, I, I think also a lot of what we did back then, I mean, frankly, I'm just happy that some of it just died with the website because I think that today's audience and college kids and just sort of, you know, people on the internet are less willing to take a joke with certain things. And I think we probably pushed the envelope in ways that would just create more challenging conversations today. And then college humor sort of as a genre, I think probably makes some people uncomfortable today. It's just, it's frat boy humor. Like a lot of those things just doesn't fly in the same way that it did 20 years ago. So 
I think that we started to feel a little bit of that in the later years. But again, I, I think it was sort of a brand that made a lot of sense in the moment that it existed. And probably at least the brand as it felt in those days is probably a little bit dated today. I mean, things have, have just changed a lot. Here, Josh is alluding to another important shift that's taken place in the wake of digital media. So far, I mostly focused on the technology shift that College Humor navigated, a shift from centralized content creation and distribution to user-generated content. But there was also the natural shifts in consumer preferences surrounding entertainment and specifically humor that every generation experiences. After all, those things aren't static either. And the things that were considered funny or even socially acceptable in 1999 are not the same things as they are now, and they'll be different again in another 20 years. The point is, the world in which entrepreneurs operate isn't static. Trends, preferences, culture, and technologies ebb and flow at their own paces, and they're hard to predict. Heck, it's easy to sit here, look back on a site like College Humor, and call it a transitional entrepreneurial opportunity, something that was popular yet fleeting, but that's only with the help of hindsight that I can do that. At the time, it was hard to even recognize the full value of a site like College Humor. One of the early conversations I had was shortly after moving to New York, we met with Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker which we actually stood him up for the first meeting because our phones were still on California time for our calendars. So we thought we were meeting him at six, but it was actually three or whatever. So felt horrible, finally met him. And then he told us that he thought our business was worth $20 million, which at that point, you know, if you had asked me, I would have said it's worth $2 million or a million. You know, I did not think it was worth that much at all. And it's not just that the potential of a funny little quasi-niche content website like College Humor is hard to predict. In the early days of user-generated content, it was just as hard to predict the full extent of the seismic shift that would occur in the wake of enormous platforms like Facebook and YouTube. I remember having an opportunity to invest in Facebook a while back before it was public and hearing the, the valuation and just, that's absurd. Like, how could it ever be worth that much? And, you know, it's probably worth 500 times now what it was worth at that point, right? So I think another example like that is when Flickr was acquired, I think it was a $30 million deal. And that was just like an unbelievable sum of money. It was just hard to imagine that a website could be worth that much. Obviously, you know, when the MySpace deal happened, same thing. Nobody was really thinking about these businesses to be worth hundreds of millions or billions or even hundreds of billions of dollars, right? So I think the, the way that we were framing our ambition was within the sort of constraints of, of what seemed possible at that time. And, and I think the goal line just moved tremendously further than we had, had ever imagined. So when you were a teenager just starting to build College Humor, to what extent, if any, were you thinking about the significance of what you were doing and the changing media and cultural landscape that it represented? I mean, I thought about that a lot. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier, just how kids starting college in 99 all came to school with a brand new laptop and high-speed internet for the first time in their lives. And I think if I had started college a year earlier or a year later, I would have not had the same idea. I wouldn't have thought about it in the same way. So it was really critical that we were doing it at the moment that we did it. And I can remember going on spring break 
the first year of college and I was with my business partner, Ricky, and we both brought our girlfriends and basically just like ignored them the whole time while we were just on our computers emailing. And I think we both got dumped pretty shortly after that trip. But just the idea that we could be on our computers and just like running a business and like making money with nothing more than a laptop was just a really unique feeling. And, you know, my father had a business that he ran, but it was a food service distribution company. They had 100,000 square foot refrigerators and tons of people and trucks and like all these physical things that seemed really complicated and difficult to manage. And we just had our laptops and a server. And it just seemed kind of incredible that we were able to do what we were doing and, and connect with all these people over the internet. So yeah, I mean, it's it wasn't lost on me at all. And I think even still, everybody's sort of becoming even more remote and realizing how easy it is to to get some of these things done with people all over the world. And again, when I started College Humor, it was just my business partner, Ricky and I, in you know, different colleges and different dorm rooms, and, and that never felt challenging. So the idea of sort of working remotely and, and being in different places and working with people in different cities, that's how we started. So that always felt really natural to us. And it was something that I always, uh, and still think is really exciting just to be able to have those interactions day to day, but be in a completely different place. Well, some entrepreneurial shifts are indeed temporary and fleeting and transitional. Curated, user-generated content, like what College Humor built a business around in the early 2000s, was definitely one of them, but other shifts are long-term and permanent. When Josh is talking about the shift to distributed workforces, I'm pretty sure he's pointing out something that's the latter. While College Humor might not be the billion-dollar media empire its founders had once hoped for, the idea that a couple college kids working from their laptops in their dorm rooms could create a successful business, well, that seems like it's a change that's here to stay. And selfishly, I can't say I mind. After all, I teach entrepreneurship for a living, and the fact that entrepreneurs listening to this podcast right now from anywhere in the world could turn around and use what they've learned to build a successful company, well, I think that's pretty cool. I suspect you do too. After all, if you didn't, I kind of doubt you'd be listening. And that's why I hope you'll also take a moment to consider sharing this episode with a friend and, you know, maybe inspire another entrepreneur. And while you're at it, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those really help us out as we try to get these stories out to more people. A huge thanks to our guest on this episode, Josh Abramson, for sharing the story of building college humor. If you'd like to see what he's up to these days, you can find him on Twitter. He's at Josh Abramson. This podcast is on Twitter too. We're at Webmasters Pod. You can write to us to share any thoughts or feedback on the episode, or you can write me directly. I'm at Aaron Dinan. That's A-A-R-O-N-D-I-N-I-N. Also, if you'd like more articles, stories, advice, tips, tricks, and resources on entrepreneurship, head on over to my website, AaronDinan.com. You'll find lots of great stuff there. A thanks to our audio engineer, Ryan Higgs, for his help pulling together this episode. And a thanks to our sponsor, Latonas, for their help. Remember, if you're interested in buying or selling an internet business, don't forget to head on over to latonas.com. And if you're interested in more webmasters, well, you're in luck because we've got another episode coming soon. Make sure you're subscribed so you get it as soon as it's released. For now, though, it's time for me to sign off. Goodbye.